Well, I got to tell you about a moment yesterday. Ann and I were about to board the plane to fly home, and uh, they had some kind of a fast pass thing for me, and I was all excited about it, and, uh, and I didn't have to take all my clothes off, you know, that kind of a deal going through security, and I had to even leave my shoes on. It was amazing, and, but I did have to go through kind of an old-school metal detector, and the guy looked at me, and he said, I don't want this to mess up your pacemaker. Now, I'm, I'm in boomer denial. Uh, I'm the only one. You're not for me, but that was not a happy moment. So I had a couple of hours on the flight home. We uh, got out of the plane, got in our car. We're driving out, ready to pay for a long-term parking. And a guy looked at me and he said, do you uh, qualify for any discounts today? And I said, yes, I'm old. Church. I mean, that's what's real. God came to a dark, messy, slimy planet to bring light and to restore and to forgive. But folks... You know, we slosh. We don't dance, we slosh. And if you prance, it's in the poop. And here at Evergreen, we've just decided to keep it real and to really start where life really happens. Because if we start in some myth, then we're only inviting God to come into the myth. And he really didn't die so that he could die for our dream. He died so that we could be saved and fixed where we are. And I can't with integrity end a series about busted relationships without acknowledging that some of them are broken beyond repair. So let's be real about that today. And I think you're going to discover with me that, you know, God's aware of that. So we're not going to shock him today with anything we read from the Bible. You understand what I mean? He's kind of not surprised about what he's already said about things. Now, I'm a, I'm a theological optimist. I read the Bible and I see that God is good. He's incredibly patient. He's merciful. He's kind. He tells us the truth and he does it in love. God goes to the nth degree to have a relationship with us. But I also know that God has boundaries. God knows when to say when. And we should have boundaries too. And in understanding his, we're going to discover some things about ours. So today what I'd like to do is I'd like to share in this big idea with you that some relationships can't be fixed now. And you have to know when to say when. So let's start with this question. So when does God say when? Let's start by looking at what God does. And frankly, there's many places in the Bible where God has moved in a relationship with a person or with people, and he has sinned when. And it helps us to see a few of those. Let's take a look at just a few. It didn't take long in your Bible. If you start with the very first book, Genesis, you only have to get to chapter 6 before God said, when, enough. Kind of gives you a hint about what the rest of the story might be. Lots of enough, but... And here's the first time. God said when to humans in Genesis chapter 6, when he destroyed the earth with a flood, enough, he said. Notice it with me. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And so the Lord said, 
I will wipe out mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, for I'm grieved that I've made them. God said, enough. A second time God said, when? It was prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah. And if you start at the front of your Bible and you get about two-thirds or so of the way through, you find that there's these prophets that spoke to the nation of Israel into the future about their relationship with God. And it says in Jeremiah chapter 3 that God gave the whole nation divorce papers. Here's what he said. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. God said, when? He didn't abandon them. They abandoned him. And he acknowledged what was true about the relationship by serving divorce papers on them. He sent Israel into a foreign captivity. The nation was no, no more, but he still extended hope. He goes on in chapter 3 to say in verse 12, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. And I won't be angry forever. Here's the deal. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you've rebelled against the Lord your God, and And you scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and haven't obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. So God said, after he got their attention, I'll receive you back when you've repented and you've returned. God still held out hope. God says when, thirdly, and only three of several illustrations that we could use. God says, when, when people blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Some of you've had questions about this verse. You'll be glad I brought it into the talk today. Notice what Jesus said. The guy named Mark recorded it. We find it in his book in verse three, chapter three. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. How many of you ever wondered about that one? Said, yeah, I I hope I'm not on the wrong side of that one at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, so what is this unforgivable sin? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you. Because after centuries of theological discussion about this, I have the final and correct word. Are you ready? Here we go. Yeah. I think what it means is it's having a heart so hard toward God that even he can't penetrate it with his mercy and his truth. And I think I know what that looks like. Because when you read the story into which Jesus spoke those words, it's telling. There were some religious guys who watched Jesus heal sick people and blamed it on the devil. It's a heart so hard that you call good things evil and evil things good. It's a heart so hard that God can't even penetrate it with his mercy and his truth. Well, Jared, I get what it is, but I wonder if I've done it. (laughs) Have you been there? I have questions from time to time. I'm concerned that I might have 
done the unforgivable sin. And what I tell people without hearing their story is this. Trust me on this. If you're concerned about it, you haven't. Yeah. If you're worried about that one, folks, your heart is already soft enough to be open to God's mercy and grace and truth. If you're concerned about it, you haven't done it. You can't do it by mistake. It doesn't sneak up on you and trick you. You don't slide off into it. If you're concerned, God's working in your heart. But here's the point of the story. There is a time when God says when. There is a time for all of eternity that we can resist him indefinitely from our point of view, but at a certain point of time, we lose the opportunity to respond. God says when. So in this first part of a two-part talk today, we've learned that sometimes God says when. The second part, I want to ask and answer the question, so what about us? When should I say when? In his book entitled Necessary Endings, Dr. Henry Cloud writes, and I quote, In both our personal and professional lives, there are times when we must stand up and end something. For example, end a dating relationship that's not going where it needs to go, get out of social ties or activity commitments when the season for those is over, leave a job or a career that isn't right or is even toxic for you, end a marriage that's destroyed by repeated unfaithfulness that's not changing, unplug from toxic friendships or family relationships, or step away from an addict who chooses not to change. Tough stuff. We prance through the poop in life. How many times, though, with clear evidence staring us in the face, do we find it very difficult to move forward with the ending? Why is it tough to pull the trigger? Well, we may have internal maps that tell us because we've been taught to be nice, nice but not always loving. The nice map tells us if you do a difficult thing, it might harm another, or it might hurt their feelings, or it might be mean. In other words, fears can dominate and keep us from moving forward to necessary endings. I want to see if you can relate to any of these fears that can cause us to hang on too long. You're afraid of the loss and sadness that that might bring. You're afraid of the uncertainty that will come. You fear having the confrontation. You fear hurting the other person. Or maybe you've already had too many painful endings in your life. You don't want to add another one to the list. Or maybe you've blown endings before and you'll just live with the thing now. Probably all of us can relate to something on that list. So today, let's, let's challenge, examine our challenge of when should I say when by looking at it from three different angles. First, me, second, them, and third, us. So first, 
Me. When I have done all I can. I want you to notice three different verses. They're just so powerful. They all sound an awful lot of like because God knew that we needed to hear this more than one time. Notice what Paul writes to the church at Romans in the book we call Romans chapter 12. It says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on who? You. Live at peace with who? Everyone. As far as it depends on you. So after I've done everything I can, I may need to step away from another person, adjust the relationship after all I've done, everything I can to actually reconcile, but without success. Hmm. Because after you've done everything for reconciliation to take place, the other person must respond as well. Paul, two chapters later, says in chapter 14, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. So you ask yourself the question, have I made every effort? Have I done all that I could reasonably do to bring peace to the relationship? And then third and finally on this point, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, so make every effort to live in peace with everyone. This writer repeats this thought. Make every effort to live in peace. Everyone, leave no stone unturned. Make every effort. Do what you can. Give it your best shot. Do all that you can. I was reminded of what doing all that you can might look like just a couple of days ago. I was with a group of uh, pastors, some of whom I had not seen for a few years. And I was sitting at a large table there for breakfast. And one pastor came by and he sat down next to me and uh, enjoyed the conversation. And I haven't seen him for quite a while, probably two or three years. And he sat down and he said, Jared, the reason I wanted to check in with you today is to make sure we're good. Now, I don't know what you think when someone sits down and says, I'm here to make sure we're good. But if you have enough insecurity like me, it's, I wonder what I did now. I wonder what I did to make this bad. Because I was pretty sure he hadn't done anything bad to me. Of course, given my advanced age, I might have forgotten that anyway. I understand. But I've, and so I said, I think we're good. Are we good? And he says, yeah, we're good. And I said, well, why did you ask me if we were good? And, and then it reminded me of something that I had done that could have left some loose ends in our relationship. And he said, I just want you to know that we're good. I said, one of the things I really appreciate about you is that you really care for relationships and you attend to those and you want to make sure that loose ends are, are wrapped back together. And then he told me a really cool story. So he wanted to hire somebody that was on a staff of a church in Memphis, Tennessee. This guy lives in the Northwest. And so wanting to make sure that he honored and respected the boss who happened to be the lead pastor of that church where a person was employed, he flew to Memphis, Tennessee and set up a phone appointment with the pastor to talk with the pastor face-to-face about the possibility of recruiting this person off of that church staff. When the pastor heard that story, he said, you mean you came all the way from there to Memphis to have coffee with me to talk about that? And my friend said, yeah. That's the only reason why I'm here. We're done. I get back on the plane and I go home. I was impressed. Now, I want you to know that I've never flown to Memphis to talk to somebody about anything. Yeah. And I'm probably not going to do what he did in that situation. But I'll tell you where I was challenged 
He certainly attends with a lot more personal sacrifice and effort and investment in making sure that he's going to be at peace with everyone as far as it depends on him than I do. And I was challenged to think through this, Jared. Have you really done everything that's reasonable to do over time to as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone? But sometimes we have done everything and the other person does not reconcile It may be a time that we don't give up on the relationship forever, but it's time to say when and step out of the relationship in its current definition and intensity and see what might happen down the road. So the first thing we learned is that we might need to step away now if we've done everything we reasonably can do for peace. The second thing that we learn is that we may need to see when because of because of them. When the other person is unrepentant and unwilling to exchange or uh, change, or maybe even acknowledge that she's done anything wrong. This is what Jesus says about that in Luke chapter 17. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, And seven times comes back to you and says, I repent. What do you do? You forgive him. Interesting. So as long as there's reciprocity in this thing, sin, repent, forgive, sin, repent, forgive, there's no end of that cycle. But but what happens when there's not that acknowledgement? Our, Our predisposition is always to forgive, but... If the other person refuses to repent or, or express sorrow or doesn't think they were wrong or knows they were wrong and couldn't care less, it's hard to go much further than the willingness to provide forgiveness. It may be, even after you forgive, time to step back because reconciliation requires two people. I told a story here one year ago this week. So when some of you feel like you've heard this in stereo, the pacemaker guy was not right. I remember telling the story. But it's the 30th anniversary this week of this story, so I have to mention it again. 30 years ago, Ann and I were 20. Uh, It's not hard to do the math. I've made it easy for you. I haven't rounded. It's real. And... We were sent to pastor a church that was highly conflicted, emotionally distraught, and kind of flying apart with divisions. And one of the leaders in the church, who had a lot of platform, time, and space, and tremendous influence in the church, a very gifted woman, did not like us. And on one Wednesday night, during the regular uh, midweek worship service, she stood up in the middle of the service and said, Do you understand that we don't want you here? Go back where you came from. And then she sat down. By the way, that's highly disruptive. (laughs) And we worked with her for the next several months. She continued to be one of the leaders. She continued to be on the platform. People were in in sorrow and mourning and suffering. We understand. All of us do things that we would regret in the future. But after several months, it had gone from bad to worse. And she was beginning to be very divisive in the whole church. And so we had a conversation and we met and some of you remember the story. We had flowers 
We begged her to reconcile. We knelt down in front of her on our knees and asked her if she would move forward with us. And the result of that conversation was she stood up and she laughed with a snare of derision in her voice. And she said, you are nothing but weak leaders. And when she stomped out of the room and slammed the door, she left the church and took some of her following with her. She obviously did not want to talk to us. And as far as it depended upon us to be at peace, we felt like we'd done everything we could possibly and reasonably do, and we let her go. Because sometimes the us piece of the, the them piece of this just simply doesn't allow the reconciliation to take place. And you give it over to God. And you say, God, we give this relationship to you. If somehow in the future you can find a way to bring reconciliation, we'll be as available as we can. So the reason I told this story a year ago this week is because after 29 years, we were at an event together with about 1,000 people, and she came over and she introduced herself. I appreciated that. She looked different. I haven't changed. She did. (laughs) And she introduced herself, and I smiled. And she hugged, and she cried, and she hugged, and she cried. 29 years years later. I am so sorry, she said. Wow. The them piece. When should you say when? Well, sometimes when the other person is unwilling to repent or acknowledge or to reconcile. But even when you say when, you don't have to say when forever. You can say when, for now, and step aside and move on. Well, I promised we'd look at this from three angles, the me, the them, and now the us. Us, when the relationship is destructive or toxic. We know how life is experienced, and we take it on here at Evergreen. Listen, we keep it real. Sometimes the relationship reaches the point where it becomes so destructive or toxic or dangerous, it's just simply time to say when and get out. God has two. You might too. Now I say this cautiously because I know that it's very possible for someone who's in a tough or difficult marriage to use this as an easy excuse to get out. <clears throat> Can I just say marriage is a difficult thing? If you're married and yours isn't difficult, then you're lying. <laughs> marriage is tough. We understand that. But there's a difference, a huge difference between difficult and destructive. There's a huge difference between a tough and a toxic relationship. There's a huge difference between being unhappy and being unhealthy. And because... Millions of people miss the distinction between those two columns. Many people bail out of marriages far before they should and for the wrong reasons. Listen, Pastor Tim Keller writes in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, I quote, Surveys tell us that the number of married people who say they are very happy in their marriages is high. It's about 62%. 
And there has been little decrease in this figure over the last decade. Most striking of all, longitudinal studies demonstrate that two-thirds of those who were unhappy in marriages and stuck it out will become happy within five years if they stay married. So, listen, you're not getting an excuse from me. I'm not making life easy for you. If you're in a tough marriage, hang in there. It'll probably get better. But when the marriage becomes so hurtful and destructive and toxic that it will destroy you and others, something has to be done. And it's when to say when. So here's the deal. I don't encourage someone with an alcoholic or a practicing substance abuse partner to continue in an enabling role. I don't encourage a person to stay with a partner who beats or abuses them or the children. I don't encourage a husband or wife to stay with a spouse who is repeatedly unfaithful. I don't encourage someone to stay in a relationship where they're continually, a friendship where they're continually attacked and belittled. I don't encourage people to stay in a church where leadership is sinful and destructive. There's a time to say when. When it's toxic or destructive, get out. Enough. Now remember, getting out doesn't necessarily mean blowing up the relationship forever. It means making a change. Maybe it's a time of separation or withdrawal or another adjustment. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And you know here at Evergreen, we acknowledge that. And in that spirit today, I want to read part of Anna's story. None of you know her. I don't either. She's chosen to go public with it. Let me read a couple of paragraphs. My husband was mentally and physically abusive and had a sexual addiction problem. Once before our marriage... He threatened to kill us both in the car. I thought his behavior would change once he moved away from his family, and for a very short time, it did. Before I gave birth to our first child, he twice again threatened to kill us. And after I gave birth, his mental abuse of manipulation, questioning my fidelity, stalking me, escalated. And after the birth of our second child, his sexual addiction was ignited and he began a series of affairs. As I was walking on eggshells, but I still loved him. His continual physical abuse ceased the day he belted me so hard I lost partial hearing in one ear and then he raped me. In the final feudal weeks, I remained with him. I narrowly stopped him from a sexual advance on our daughter and watched in horror as he threw a knife at our son. My children, and all, I, I, all, my children and I all survived and undertook counseling after I demanded that my husband leave the house for good and I began divorce proceedings one year later. She says, I know it's easy to say, just get out, but I know what it feels like to wanting to give a fifth and a sixth and a seventh chance It took a lot of false starts, but eventually I stepped out of an abusive relationship. I'm now remarried and enjoying every minute of what a real marriage should be. Hmm. 
Stacy Womack, see you here, a founder. Of course, I remember the number of years, nearly 20 years of arms. Ministry started here in Portland and has gone to many states now. Many of you are familiar with ARMS. It is a place initially where women could come and find a safe place of support and help and encouragement and some wisdom and resources and then a safe place for kids and now a place for men as well to be engaged in a whole variety of programs with anger management and dealing with anger issues. Here's the point. We keep it real here at Evergreen. There's abuse that happens among Evergreeners. We get that. I don't know who you are. I just understand the stats. I know that's how it's like. We keep it real here at Evergreen. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. Some of you have heard some goofy stuff in the name of God and the Bible that didn't come from either. Okay. And if you need to get help, get help. And find people who, with knowledge and compassion and experience and wisdom and deep biblical conviction... And the power and the leadership and gifting of the Holy Spirit can help you make some sense about taking your next step, best steps forward. Because here's the deal. I'm wanting the not to be confused today. I hope you're getting the right impression for me that I'm all for marriage and I am not for divorce. I hope you understand that around here we're committed to marriage. We will tough it out. We will work through it. We will be real. We will go through the difficult times. But listen, when it's toxic, you've got to know when to say when and take the next steps that are best, not only for you and those that you love, but others that are involved as well. Hmm. So... For those of you that are married, let me go back to you for a moment. Work through, work through tough times. And for those of you especially that maybe you're a little younger in marriage or you're interested maybe if you've been married and you're thinking about getting married again, or if you're not married and you're thinking about the prospect, let me give you some good heads up. Studies tell us that many couples encounter six hot buttons over the course of their marriage. Are you ready for these? Number one, here we go. Work stress. Number two, in-laws. Sorry, Lauren. I'm trying my stinking best. (laughs) Sex, housework, internet-fueled distractions, and a new baby. Yep, that cute little baby is not happy. Mm. After having a baby, 67% of couples find their marriage satisfaction plummet. Post-baby disconsent is common. Work through it. It will grow up. (laughs) Be informed. There are two critical points in a marriage. The first is the first seven years during which over half of all divorces take place. If you can survive the first seven, you're on your way to something better usually. And number two, see, those kids are out. When the first child turns 14, there's just way too many hormones going on in the house when that first kid hits there. Listen, they'll grow up too. Here's the deal. Of course, marriage is tough work. Of course, we work it through. But when a relationship gets toxic and it is destructive, we may need to know when to say when. Sometimes it's a separation period, which really allows the other partner to get his or her attention captured. Sometimes it means ending a toxic or destructive relationship. 
But here's our summary. We only say when, when we've done everything reasonable to be at peace with another. We only know when to say when, when they are so committed to their direction, moving away from and against us that they are unwilling or unable to move toward reconciliation. We know when to say when, when the relationship is destructive and toxic and safety is at risk. And remember that it doesn't necessarily mean permanently giving up on the relationship. It, it may mean a season of separation or withdrawal or an adjustment. So here's the deal. Don't give up. Give it to God. I think the Bible is clear. It teaches us that if we repent, God is always there to take us back. And if the other person in our life genuinely changes, we can make room for him or her to have some place in our lives again. I've seen horribly broken relationships that have become whole, but that always requires change on both parts. I've seen toxic relationships become healthy only when substantial change has taken place. That's why I said at the start of this talk, there are some relationships that can't be fixed now. The key word is now. Step away and give it to God and see what happens. Now, God may ask you to do something. If he does, obey. He may ask you to take a step here at Evergreen. He may ask you to take your next best step. You might access arms. You might access grief share, which helps us move through significant loss in our life. You might need to link up in one of the men's or women's groups to walk with people who do life with us and we can be real in those relationships. It might be your next best step to connect with a pastor and engage in God's word and with prayer about your situation. It may be your next best step to engage with one of the professional counselors that we make referral to. Get some help. And here's the deal, folks. And be some help. If you're not needing help today, we need you to give our help today. Because the Bible is clear. The one who helps today will probably need it tomorrow. And the one being helped today will probably help tomorrow. The one who's helping today. We are prancing through the poop together. So give it to God. And tell him that if and when he wants to resurrect it in his time, that you'll be available to appropriately respond at that season of your life, whatever that might look like. Yeah. And then leave it there. Unless he tells you to do something, do that, and then still leave it there. But otherwise, just leave it in his hands. Don't give up. Give it up to God. So I'm going to pray in just a minute. I'm going to pray that God will help every person here have some sense about what next step you should take. Is it okay to be this real and talk this real together? You know, one of the things that happens when we do is it just stirs up all kinds of stuff, though, doesn't it? 
It's why it'd probably be nicer to go to a church that just smiles and puts on the plastic and says, life is beautiful all the time. Me too, just like you. Dirty, rotten liars, right? When we're real, it brings stuff up. And and some of you are just going back to ancient history in your life. I read Anna's story today, and some of you just relived pain. You saw images, man. Some of you this morning were listening through the ears of a marriage or two that have ended in divorce. And the real possibility for you is to is to feel guilt and condemnation. And some of you are struggling right now. You're trying to make the decision of what to do with that relationship. Heck, some of you have been thinking about marriage, and I just talked you out of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So here's the deal. We've got to come to the place that came to this dark planet to bring the fix of all the junk, all the junk, all the stuff. He's called the God of hope because when we get to the end of our rope, when we get to the bottom of our barrel, when we have hit rock bottom, when we're hanging by the one string left in the rope, he's the hope. He's your hope today. He's our hope today. And when we pray, we're doing something very powerful and real. We're inviting God, the creator, to come into your place, in your life, in your relationships, and not just bring hope that makes you feel a little better, but the hope that substantially brings change. And some of you need the change of forgiveness for your dirty, rotten sins today. Like all of us do. Forgiveness of sins. And some of you need wisdom today. What your next step's going to be. And some of you today are saying, I'm the bad guy in this story. I need help to be the kind of person that my heart wants to be. And somehow my mouth and my emotions and my body ends up doing stuff that my heart does not want to be and do. Don't we all need help today? And some of you have gotten helped and you're selfish now. You knew if you came and heard me today, it was going to be tough. You know. Because you haven't started giving back. And your next step is to find out where you get to help and go alongside others that are walking a story that maybe two weeks or two years ago you walked as well and help others find their way forward. We really need each other, don't we? That's why we gather together. And it's why we always pray to him. Would you join me as we pray? God, thank you for not being embarrassed when we talk about what's real. Thank you for showing us the way, God, and how relationships are to work and what happens when they fail. And then in the middle of all that, being the God of hope that always stands on the other side of whatever failure or difficulty or pain or sin or relapse we've encountered, to say, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. And today some of us reach out in our sin, and we reach towards you for your forgiveness. God, I have sinned. Forgive me of my sin. Some of us reach out to you today, God, because we are empty. We're just shells inside. We have better desires and aspirations that we have the power to fulfill. We ask that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, baptize us with the Holy Spirit, with power to live the life of Christ that we so desperately want to live because you've called us to it.
Fill us with your love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom, Lord, on how to take next steps in fragile relationships. Give us the courage not to be rogue, lone rangers, but to get some help with some folks that really care and understand some things and can see from a third-party perspective. Help us help each other as we move forward. Holy Spirit, heal our lives where they're broken. And for those of us who've been walking on a path of your wholeness, show us where to engage with others so we can be healers as well as healing. Help. And now for my friends that are taking their step forward, Lord, would you help them as they follow you every day of their life. In Jesus' name, amen.